0: Genesis 50, verses 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, before your father died, he commanded, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of your servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Father in heaven, we do thank you for this privilege of worship, for the filling of your Holy Spirit, whereby we may embrace hope and joy in your presence. Please give us a further taste of heaven today as we read of your word, seek to understand it, and seek to live it out. Please guide my words now that they would stay faithful to that which you have preserved for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The text before us today makes very plain, I believe, the burden, the heavy burden of a guilty conscience, as well as partly what we've been celebrating today, the freedom, the joy of a cleansed conscience. Note these contrasts: The brothers were fearful, whereas Joseph was at peace. The brothers assumed the worst. Joseph looked for the best. The brothers thought there would uh, sorry, others would behave vindictively, in fact, as they themselves had <laughs> years prior, whereas Joseph sought to behave meekly as the Lord had enabled him. Further, the brothers sought to placate. Joseph promised comfort. The brothers had their eyes on men. Joseph had his eyes on the Lord. What a pity it is that for so many years, the brothers had lived with the burden of their sin. While they were still in Canaan, they perpetuated the lie, didn't tell the truth to their father about Joseph's disappearance. Even once, now, years later, as they're down in Egypt, they still had not fully resolved the situation. For decades, it would appear, they lived with the guilt of their actions friends, this should not be. This is not the way it can or should be when we embrace the Lord. I trust that as we look through this passage today, we will be stirred up to find forgiveness, modeled here in the words and comfort that Joseph provides, but more importantly, embraced personally, that we would find forgiveness where it only can be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. May our lives indeed be marked by grace that comes by knowing we are forgiven as well as a grace of being able to forgive others because really who wants to live like these brothers did who spent year after year in the shadow of their sins so may we lay our sins at the cross find forgiveness from our gracious God and have lives that evidence his abundant mercy working through us With that as our shared vision, let us take a closer look then at these verses in God's holy word. The first part of the text does lay bare the brother's guilty conscience. We're going to go through this verse by verse, reading again verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So the first thing I wanna consider in this verse is the timing. It says when, when they saw that their father was dead. It would have seen that this was on their mind during the events of the prior 14 verses of this chapter. As soon as their father died, they wondered, whoa, what's gonna happen now? During the 40 days of mourning, They wondered the same thing. During that trip up to Canaan, that huge entourage, remember we spoke of a couple weeks ago, they wondered what's going to happen now. Throughout all of this, including the seven days of mourning there, the trip back, they're wondering what is going to happen. They considered what would happen now that their father was dead. Sadly, They couldn't, at the appropriate time, focus fully on the faithful life their father had lived or the great promises made by God to their father and then through them as his descendants. Or they could not also fully focus on the amazing things that Lord had accomplished in their father's life or would accomplish into generations in the future. Instead, all that rejoicing in God and embracing his promises and fulfillment was tempered by their worry about what might happen next. As it's word in Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee when no one pursues. They did not have proper peace and joy, rest, uh, honor for their father even, because they had this hanging over their heads. They had to look back over their shoulders, as it were. Further next, notice their concern, that Joseph would repay them for the evil they had done. They knew they'd done wrong, right? Thankfully here, in their words, they're not trying to cover that over. They're acknowledging it for what it was, evil. And so they're fearful that Joseph would repay evil for evil. The brothers knew it was evil. They say here in verse 15, uh, Jacob is quoted as saying it in verse 17. Joseph acknowledges it as evil in verse 20. That's something everybody can agree on. It was evil. And their concern is that Joseph will return like for like The word translated here, repay, in the New King James, other translations have return. It's the idea of you paid something, you get it back, like playing racquetball. It comes right back off the wall, back at you, sometimes faster. The idea is to direct back what you received at the person who sent it. And notice the words ahead of that, actually repay. could be translated fully repay. They're fearing a vindictive, sort of stereotypical, eye for an eye mentality. Why would they assume this of Joseph, right? What in his character, what in his actions had given them the idea that this is how Joseph would act now that Jacob was gone? Had he ever given them a hint that he held a grudge, that he harbored ill will or wanted to get back at them or was looking for an opportunity to get even? No, not that scripture records quite the opposite actually. But when someone who has not received of God's mercy and had their conscience cleansed, those types of people tend to think others will do as they did, right? The brothers were jealous and envious and vindictive and hurtful and all the rest. That's the way they think other people are gonna act, right? The brothers knew their actions were evil. They assumed others would treat them likewise. Their consciences told them the wages of sin Is hurt, death, as we read in Romans, but at least injury in their model. They couldn't deny that that was the consequences of their sin, and they expected it to come back at them. Uh, This hints at one application of this text, and I think it enters in, in evangelism. We must remember that people know they are sinners, right? Romans teaches us that people suppress that truth in unrighteousness. The very unrighteousness that commits sin also tries to downplay it, minimize it, forget about it. To varying degrees, people are successful in that. Sadly, as sin escalates, people get better, quote unquote, at suppressing that sin. But deep down inside, they know it. They know it is wrong. They know they have offended a holy and transcendent God. So when we speak to them, we have the opportunity to use God's word and his works of providence to awaken them to that sense of their own guilt. May that be the case that God would use His words to stir up in them an acknowledgement of the true path to reconcile, to take care of their guilt. Here, that providence, what I refer to as God's ways, his works, is the death of their father. So, having their father gone, they had to finally confront what are we going to do about this, right? We can't live like this forever. Is Joseph going to come back at us? We need to take care of this. So, it's the occasion of their father's death that awakened in them their sense of guilt, their need to take care of it. It was there all along. It never went away, suppressed to varying degrees, but it surged to the surface, and now that the morning was over, they very much feared for their lives. On now to verse 16, the solution. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, We'll get to what they actually said in this note in a moment. So their solution is to reach out to him. Uh, Remember they were herdsmen, uh, despised within that local culture, whereas Joseph was still serving as the vice ruler of Egypt. It makes sense that they did not have daily face-to-face contact. We might think, why didn't they just sit down at Saturday dinner, right? Why did they have to do this whole formal thing? Well, I think it's reasonable to understand they didn't have daily contact. They had to reach out some way. Could also be wanting to pay greater respect to him. They went the formal route, at least as the first step of sending messengers or sending a message. And so I wouldn't read too much into a sort of uh, distancing of the relationship. It could be. But at the very least they reach out to him and they try to uh, uh, enter into this conversation gradually. Notice the preamble to their message. Before your father died, he commanded. They don't say our father. Again, I wouldn't read too much into this as if they're not claiming a heritage with Jacob. I believe likely they wanted to avoid the perception of putting themselves on the same level as Joseph. So by wording it in this way, they show respect. They're trying to honor Joseph and uh, emphasize their subjugation to him. The word here, commanded, as we see the latter half of verse 16, is the same word we've seen a few places in the previous sections of this whole historical event. It's the same as in 49, 33. That's where Jacob commanded his sons concerning his burial. Uh, Charged is the way it's translated in New King James. It's also the same as in chapter 50, verse two, where there it's Joseph who commanded his servants to embalm Jacob. And I believe this is a a loaded preface, right? He's trying to say to Joseph, hey, our father commanded you to do something. (laughs) And so it's kind of a backhanded way, uh, uh, backdoor at least, I guess the idiom backhanded says maybe a bit more than I intend. So it's a, a backdoor way to try to get Joseph to do what they want him to do. By saying Jacob commanded, Jacob charged, Jacob implored you to do this, they're hoping for greater success. Joseph knew what it was to give commands and to have them obeyed. And of course, Joseph, without question, is going to obey his father's, his deceased father's commands, right? So this is their mechanism for getting Joseph to show mercy, or at least in a humanist wording, to not get back at them. The real substance of this command follows then in verse 17, reading it again. So this is their father who commanded, saying... Quote, "Thus you shall say to Joseph I beg you please forgive the trespasses of your brothers and their sin for they did evil to you now please forgive the trespasses of the servants of the god of your father" and Joseph wept when they spoke to him so the first part of that is Jacob is the brothers quoting the father commanding Joseph sorry if that's confusing the brothers quoting Jacob What Jacob, the father, was commanding Joseph. Consider the substance of this command. Partly, I have to wonder if they're being truthful. If Jacob had said this, why didn't Joseph know this already? Why hadn't it already been obeyed and acted upon? Why hadn't it already been resolved? If he knew about it, certainly Joseph would have forgiven them. It would have been taken care of. If Jacob had said it, but Joseph was was unaware, why did they withhold it from him previously? The brothers seem to be using this message from the grave to lay the groundwork for their plea, which is recorded in the middle part of the verse, where they say, now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. So again, I believe they're breaking the ice, as it were, they're trying to gain a hearing, they're trying to endear themselves to their brother by saying, this is what our father said, and of course you want to heed his commands, and so now hear us and be kind to us. And then we come to that last clause, and Joseph wept when they spoke to him. That's Joseph's response to this whole plea, this two-part plea, this perhaps it is backhanded plea. I think it is very much possible that Joseph here wept in disappointment, really. A heartbroken that his brothers still felt their guilt hanging over him, over them. They had not understood that he was over it, right? If Joseph's over it, you guys can be over it. Let's move on and not have this as a barrier between us. He'd helped them migrate into the country. He'd situated them in a safe place. He worked with them to fulfill his father's burial instructions and they're still worried? They're still feeling alienation? It must have been heartbreaking to learn that rather than having a shared brotherly trust, now that their father is gone, instead, they feared him. That would be hurtful. Well, thankfully, they were able to work it out in person. And this begins in verse 18. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, behold, we are your servants. Amen. That's a good place to start, humbling yourselves. This rightly needed to happen. They needed to take a humble posture. They fell down before him. They confessed that they were servants. They needed to confess their guilt and receive forgiveness. So they've done a good thing. Maybe not through the best methods, but they've done a good thing. They've come to him whom they know they have offended. They've stated their guilt in pretty clear terms evil, trespass. We're your servants please be kind to us, they're pleading. in that way, maybe not a sort of New Testament Christian, you know, how we might spell out a Puritan example of how to repent, but insofar as it's handled for us briefly here by Moses, it's a good statement of their repentance. And how does Joseph respond? Indeed, that's what verses 19 through 21 record for us. We see in Joseph's response evidence of a man who does not have a troubled conscience. Instead, he is at peace with the Lord. Being at peace with the Lord, he can be at peace with his fellow men. So let's continue into that section. Reading verse 19 again. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Commentators see in this phrase, am I in the place of God, a few possible meanings. and I think it is significant for us to resolve this. First, did Joseph mean to rebuke their mere bowing down before him? As if to say, don't do that. You're acting like you're worshiping me and that is an action that is only befitting to God. I believe this is unlikely, right? There's other times where he bowed down to them. They bowed down to him, I'm sorry. He did not rebuke them there. And remember the prophecy he received in his youth, uh, recorded in chapter 37, verse seven, where their sheaves were to bow down to his sheaf. right? So this is God's prophecy being fulfilled. Previously, they had bowed down to him and he did not rebuke them. Thus, it was not a sin for them to bow down on this occasion. A second option is, did Joseph mean to set aside their fear Of punishment because God alone brings the penalty for one's sins. There's a partial truth there. Joseph certainly had the power to exact earthly punishment upon them, or at the very least to make their lives difficult. So, yes, that is true, but I don't believe that's the substance of his response. Another option is Joseph stating, I am under God, under his authority. potentially valid alternative translation of the text here is to say in the place of. So am I in the place of God being understood as am I under God? So rather than asking am I in the place of God, he's stating do not fear, I'm under, that is subject to God's authority, therefore I will not be rash or vindictive in my judgment. I think this view is getting closer. But it misses a key form in the original Hebrew that makes this a question. So this is not a statement, They're not de- uh, Joseph is not declaring something, he's asking a rhetorical question. So New King James captures this well for us. Am I, am I in the place of God? Am I to take authority unto myself and thwart the counsel of God? No, that is the answer to this question. And thus follows his explanation of God's eternal counsel, which is to say, that holy will that Joseph is not gonna stand in the way of. That good and holy will that Joseph agrees with has a godly perspective in order to see and wants his brothers to embrace as well. And uh, his understanding of God's good and holy will is here in verses 20 and 21. Verse 20, but as for you, you meant evil against me. God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Notice again, I already referred to this verse earlier in showing the consensus about the brother's evil actions. So Joseph did not diminish the severity of his brother's wicked deeds. They had, in fact, been cruel, very cruel to him. They sinned in jealousy, they sinned in envy, they sinned in their violence, the money they profited at his expense, their lies. This caused a tremendous amount of hardship for Joseph. Let me think back of the history, which the Holy Spirit records multiple chapters for us recording, event after event, very difficult for Joseph, all because of the brother's sins. But God meant it for good. This is a profound statement. God meant for good what these men had meant for evil. They meant it for personal, petty, spiteful, greedy, hateful. Evil, painful in his life, but God meant it for good. The brothers really did these actions with that evil purpose in mind. They really threw him into a pit. They tore his garments. They sold him to slave traders, taking him to a foreign country. They made up the story about his death by wild beasts and perpetuated that lie for years to the breaking of their father's heart. That's their purpose. Those are their actions. Yet God had a greater purpose in it. Quoting Joseph, to save many people alive. Man's purpose was evil. God's purpose was good. That's a huge point. (laughs) One I want to deal with a bit in some applications at the end. I hope you can reflect on that later as you meditate on this passage. God's purpose was good. Verse 21, now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That word therefore, I can hear maybe it's R.C. Sproul Sr., maybe it's some other teacher saying the therefore. You have to ask what it's there for. So what's the substance or the basis for the conclusion that Joseph is drawing here. I believe it's twofold, two reasons that lead to Joseph's conclusion. First, remember that Joseph is not going to play God. He said, I am not in the place of God. I'm not questioning God's judgment. It's not my place to exact eternal revenge on you. Really, he's quoting or feeling and communicating to them what's captured in Deuteronomy 32, 35 and two other places in the New Testament where it's quoted, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Vengeance is not man's. Vengeance is not Joseph's. Vengeance is God's. He will repay it as need be. So Joseph is saying, I will not exact personal revenge because it's not in my character. It's not in my actions in history. It's not in my character as a man following after God. Second, so the second factor leading to this therefore, this conclusion for them to not fear he encouraged his brothers to not be afraid because he saw God's purposes in it. So I hope you see how those two things are linked. In light of these two reasons, the therefore, he then provided assurance that he meant no ill against them. Not only had he already taken care of them during the drought, helped them to fulfill their father's burial commands, he would continue to provide for them and their families. The word here translated provide has the sense of take care of and nourish, not merely doling out money to pay the bills, right? Sadly, there's this idiom in our culture about you know, the head of household providing for his family, and by that they mean paying the bills. That is not the biblical sense of provide, to take care of, to nourish. We can think of that picture of them being situated in the land of Goshen a lush land where their animals could feed healthy and be nourished, that their whole economy, that their families could be protected and be nourished, be taken care of. In chapter 45, Joseph promised to take care of them. That was his words. In chapter 47, the divine author says that Joseph did, in fact, provide for them. And here in chapter 50, Joseph promised to continue providing for them. So see that pattern? He'd said he would do it. The divine author says he did what he said he would do, and here he promises to do it into the future. They should not doubt his word. He had been honest. He had been faithful. He's a man of God. He will do what he'd promised. He had in the past, and he would in the future. The next result, sorry, the net result is captured in the last sentence of verse 21. He comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. (laughs) What a heartwarming summary, right? He comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Remember the context here. They're fearing for their lives. They've got this guilt hanging over them. They're wondering what is going to happen now. Joseph receives them peaceably. Yes, he stated back, you did evil. Right? He wasn't ignoring it, he wasn't covering over it. He acknowledges the truth, but he doesn't rub their noses in it. He doesn't berate them, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. I know I've had difficult times in my life where whether it's my sin catching up with me or personal limitations of skill or money or time keeping me from accomplishing the things I wanted to do and intended to do, hoped to do. I knew I was missing the mark. I didn't need someone to remind me of how far I'd missed the mark, how short I had fallen. I didn't need them to remind me by holding a dagger above my head. I needed comfort. I needed someone to speak to my heart. And that's the word here. The Marginal note for kindly says speaking to the heart. That's what friends do. That's what brothers do. That's what Joseph, a loving and godly brother, did. He did not hang that dagger over their head. He assured them there was no penalty, at least by his hand, hanging over them. He comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Well, I hope you can see uh, many implications of this profoundly moving story. In the broad scope, I believe it encompasses the story of every sinner who comes to true repentance and to faith, to reconciliation with their holy God. Uh, Before we conclude, though, I want to capture a few points of application. I kind of referred to that one earlier about evangelism. I believe there are others. Uh, One risk, as you might find in teaching your own families, one risk in making application is that you limit people's thoughts to my ideas of application. So I want these to be suggestive and not exhaustive as you look at this passage and meditate on it. I trust the Holy Spirit will bring to your mind and to those under your care, further points of application. But a few that came to my mind as I reflected on this passage. The one I've already referred to, uh, relevant to Romans eight, the suppressing of truth in unrighteousness. Men know they are guilty. They're deceiving themselves when they think they're not. But we know, because God says it, that they know what right and wrong are, and they're pretending. They're pretending with an authentic, false Christian or false humanist worldview, but they are uh, suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. This should not discourage us, really. It provides an opportunity. We know that deep down in their heart, they know the truth. And we pray, Lord, crack through that hard shell, open up that soft interior, as it were, and have these words fall on fertile ground. But this is also a warning for us, right, in our own sanctification. Uh, So whether it's in confronting someone out on the street or a neighbor in casual conversation over time, there's also the self-confrontation, our own progress in dealing with our sins. If we are getting better and better at quieting our conscience, that is a dangerous thing. So let us not suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. Let us be willing to hear and to heed and to be Uh, affected by God's word revealing our sin. We don't want to evidence maturing unrighteousness insofar as we suppress the truth and ignore our failings. We want to evidence maturing righteousness, which is to say are sensitive to God's word and how it reveals our failures. Second point of application, uh, based on 1 Corinthians 10, and I have to confess here, I couldn't really find the exact scripture. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 10 there speaks of Old Testament saints being an example that we might learn from them. So my point here is that our carnal immaturity Mm -hmm. makes us see things not as they are, right? We have a limited view because we don't think like God thinks. But with growth in godly maturity, we can see God's view of things, past, present, and future. So here it is, the model of Joseph as a godly man who sees things as God sees them. He can see that God is sovereign, that God has a purpose, that he's working all things according to his counsel. Let us then seek to mature in grace so that we can see things as God sees them. Uh, One key weakness of us in the midst of trials is we only see things from our perspective. We see the pain, we see the hurt because we're feeling pain and hurt. We're feeling dissatisfaction at not having accomplished something or being injured by something, but we need to have that maturity exemplified by Joseph in that we can step back and see things from God's perspective. Third, God's good purpose does not excuse our sin. Goes without saying that it's easy to slip into a habit of it's not that bad, right? God will forgive. It's okay, I've got four more days till Sunday or nobody's noticed yet. No, that should not be the case. Yes, grace abounds for sin as was stated earlier. Let us not underestimate the power of the cross to pay for each and every sin that is truly repented of that is genuinely and effectively atoned for at the cross but that doesn't mean we take it casually indulging upon God's grace. That would be an abuse of it. Men really do sin. They really are. we are, held accountable for it. Nothing comes to pass that is outside of God's will of decree. but it doesn't shift the blame to him. It makes it all the more true that we are responsible. We are the ones that do these sinful actions. We are the ones who need to take responsibility. Fourth, rehearse God's ways and works. Uh, Verse I refer to there in your outlines, Genesis 45, verse seven. That was a previous time where Joseph had already said basically a different wording of God meant it for good even though you did evil. So his verbal answer here to the brothers when they come first by way of emissary or a written message and second by way of person bowing before him is not the first time he's said this. He's already told them. It's okay guys, God meant it for good. Yes, you did a wicked thing, implying yes, this is horribly hurtful, I've had a bad while, but God had a good purpose in it. So really here, Joseph is rehearsing for them what he had already told them. We need to do the same. People, us, people around us, our children, need to be reminded of God's wisdom, his providence, his sovereignty, right? Never tire of reminding ourselves, reminding our spouses, reminding our children, our neighbors that God is good, he's done good things. Bad things have happened and he has worked good through them. That's maybe also I could put here the 1 Corinthians 10 passage, right? That's why those examples for us are so profitable that we can learn from them because we can see in the midst of our own circumstances, yes, God has worked through bad circumstances before. So all this to say, rehearse, rehearse God's mercy, remind ourselves that God is good, he's doing a good work. And then fifth, God's overarching aim is good. And I refer there to Genesis 1, 4 through 31, which of course is the creation story, right? What's the resounding theme through each of those sections? It was good, very good, right? That was what God established at the beginning, that very goodness. Uh, A couple of sermons ago, I noted that the references, and this was in uh, chapter 49, Jacob's uh, prophetic uh, de- declarations to his sons before his death, I noted that the references there to the future messianic king were intended to convey the idea that God is fixing what was broken and that that would be solved in the last days and a key facet of the fixing happening in the last days is that the king would be put back on a throne, right? The messianic kingdom, the messianic investiture is a key facet of the last days. Well, in our text today, we're instructed that God's purposes are good, right? God meant it for good. That ties back to the way he did it at the beginning. And everything that happened at the fall and afterwards is a continuing effort for God to restore what it had originally been. It needs to get back to that very goodness. We should be comforted that the Lord is working all things for his glory. He is in control. He has a good end in sight. Well, as I said, other applications will arise here as you meditate on this. I trust you to be sensitive to those and to share them with those around you. So to conclude, brothers and sisters, let us not think that we are forever consigned to guilt and conflict with others and these painful consequences that come about when we have sinned. No, there is hope for peace and forgiveness. Seek the Lord and you will Find him, don't seek him in manipulative ways, by name dropping important people (laughs) or doing works of penance to show your neighbor that you really mean it, no. Let us seek the Lord humbly with true repentance to acknowledge the sin and hate and forsake it. Seek and you will find it in the Lord Jesus Christ. For as the psalmist said, with you, that is God, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Joseph and the things we can learn from it. We thank you for your good purpose, that you truly are, and it's spelled out on every page of scripture, you are fixing what was broken, what was broken in our hearts, what's broken in our families, what's broken in our society, what's broken on this planet Earth. What's broken in all of history is being fixed and repaired, indeed perfectly so, according to your good will. Give us eyes of faith to see this, words boldly and fitly spoken to proclaim it to those around us, often preaching to our own hearts. We pray it will be true this day and in days to come. In Jesus' name, Amen.